Let us begin with prayer. O Lord our God, unto whom all glory belongeth, we rejoice in the magnificence and glory of thy creation. Thou hast made us rich at birth. Lord God of hosts, be merciful unto us who have laid waste our inheritance. Who have forsaken so often thy word. And have turned the paradise thou hast made into a wilderness. We thank thee that in the face of all these things through Jesus Christ thy Son our Savior... Thou hast made us a new creation and has summoned us to make all things new in Jesus Christ. Empower us by thy word and by thy spirit that we may serve thee with all our heart, mind, and being to the end that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our subject this morning is the prophetic nature of work. And our scripture is from Proverbs 13, verse 11, and then 14, 23. First of all, Proverbs 13, verse 11. Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. And 1423. In all labor there is profit. But the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury or want. Our view of prophecy is too often exotic and lawless. Men very commonly will go to fortune tellers, something forbidden by God, or in one way or another seek to discern the future as though it were something strange and exotic and unrelated to the present, unrelated to themselves. They seek to know about a future as some strange thing they never made. But the universe is God's law order. Ideas and actions both have consequences as a result. We cannot say that man makes history as the humanists do, but we must say that history is God's creation, and we follow a path that has consequences. Our lives are both totally natural and totally supernatural. There is a coincidence and a determination which is totally of man and yet at the same time 
totally of God. Whatever we do, we do because we have chosen to do so. But whatever we do is also within the sovereign providence and ordination of God. There is a coincidence of determination. But this is true of work also. This is what our two verses are about. Now such verses as these seem trite to modern man. When we say wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase, modern man is inclined to yawn. The book of Proverbs seems to modern man to be banal. Deriding work today has more wisdom for the humanists than anything else. It is interesting to look at this verse. Wealth gotten by vanity can be read also, and some prefer the reading, wealth gotten by haste. Vanity means by futile ways. But it can also be read, wealth gotten by haste. Now, gambling is wealth. If you win, that's gotten by haste, not by labor. And this is the contrast here. Wealth gotten by vanity is against wealth gathered by labor. Easy come, easy go, a modern proverb has it, which is another way of saying what this text is saying. Moreover, we are told that words are weak. Proverbs 14.23 declares that while in labor there is profit, the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury or want. Proverbs has a great deal to say, as does all the Bible, about the vanity of work, of the weakness of work, of words as a substitute for work, the futility of work, words in and of themselves is stressed by Scripture. Words cannot work. They cannot alter facts. They cannot compel a response. Words are only efficacious when they are linked to God's truth. But man's word is vanity and futility. Now our concern is more specifically with the prophetic nature of work. If I plant seeds, I am involved in predictive work. That is, if I plant them according to God's plan and order. If I plant them at the right time of the year, and if I take care of them properly, then I am trusting in the order of God's universe to produce some kind of return on my seeds and work. All work, which is godly, is future-oriented. Leisure is present-oriented. 
rest under God and according to his word is, as we have seen, also future-oriented because it's a form of trust, of preparation for God's future. We may not know even a scintilla what it is going to bring. But if we work under God and rest under God, our rest is prophetic. Work fulfills a predictive plan. Whether we are planting seeds or repairing plumbing, we are working to further order and to strengthen our dominion under God over the present. As a result, work is very, very important. Work tells us something about our future. Leisure society, as I indicated, is present-oriented, and its tomorrows are always thought of in terms of disconnection. This is why when men like Alvin Toffler write future shock, they tend to deal on an intellectual level with what the future will bring. They see it in abstraction from man and man's faith and what man thinks life is about. As a result, when you predict the future in this way, as do the Marxists, as do the Democrats and the Republicans too very often, and as do fascists and other people, they are thinking of it in terms of an elitist plan. And this is why their predictions about the future are futility. This is why, by way of contrast, Nesbitt's megatrends was so important because it looked not to fads but to trends, to what people are believing and doing right now in order to see what will happen tomorrow. This is looking at the working world instead of the elitist plans. There is a world of difference between the two. True work is prophetic and it is also non-political and productive. We have seen that elitism and leisure go together and that the elitist separates himself from the world of work. This was especially true in 19th century Europe. If a man through trade or commerce or manufacturing became very wealthy in England or on the continent, there was no way, in spite of his great wealth, that he could have any association with the elite in society. His only hope was to endow his sons and daughters so richly that they would not have to work and to marry them into the elite so that they could join the world of the leisure element then he would have the vicarious satisfaction of belonging to the elite and to the world of leisure through his children. The sad fact is that so many men of wealth did that. The sad fact, too, is that between 1860 and the 1930s, a great many Americans felt that the ultimate 
goal was to marry their daughters or their sons into nobility in Europe. The result was deadly for our culture, even as it had been for the European civilization. At the same time, too, it is interesting that the very meaning of the word spirit began to change. Before the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the word spirit referred, referred to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Then it began to change, and the kind of uh, expression we have, esprit de corps, the spirit of loyalty within a group, group dynamics, began to take over the word spirit. In his dictionary, Voltaire identified spirit as meaning ingenious reason. Others defined it as being in with the group, being in the spirit of things, so that you caught the spirit if you moved with the culture of the time. And, of course, to be with it was a term coined in the late 60s to express the same thing, what spirit had become, not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of the mob. It is interesting, too, as we view the past, our perspective is governed by a leisure mentality all too often. For example, Henry Bamford Park some years ago dealt with what modern man finds to like in the medieval period. And he wrote, <clears throat> The world of chivalry, so sordid and destructive in many of its manifestations, has continued to be favorably regarded in popular speech. Words especially associated with feudal society have mostly retained favorable connotations. A crusade, for example, is generally regarded as a noble enterprise, to such an extent that political movements often present themselves to the electorate as crusades. As a weapon customarily used by medieval warriors, a sword generally has eulogistic connotations, and is often referred to by political speakers as a weapon for the defense of right. Thus, pro-feudal propaganda continues to be reflected in popular speech with astonishing success. Unquote. Much can be added to what Park said. For example, we speak of a knight in shining armor as though this constituted an ideal figure. But the plain fact is that knights were very much given to ransacking and looting and raping. That was the joy of life for them. By contrast, the monk who changed Europe for the good and who was an intelligent worker does not have in the modern mind any such favorable image. The modern age is elitist, and therefore 
it idealizes the elitists or seeming elitists of the past. Elitists, therefore, plan from above for the future politically, but substitute words and haste or vanity for work. Remember, the proverb says that whoso gathereth by vanity, by futility, by haste, shall be diminished, but he that gathereth, by contrast, by labor, shall increase. The wealth of the world is to be gained by vanity, by haste, by politics, according to modern man. Inflationary politics underscores these verses in, in Proverbs. Godly work, however, is hierarchical and under God. It is a plan in action. It is a form of trust in God's predestination. It is a baffling fact to scholars that Calvinists produced so much and were the strong-willed people when ostensibly the doctrine of predestination should lead people to be quietists, to do nothing because God was going to do everything. They simply dismiss it as a paradox. But it is precisely the belief that God has a plan that gives power to men to work in the confidence because God is at work in all things. With this faith we work in the context of the certainty of God's victory and with confidence and power. Then too, instead of esprit de corps or ingenious reason, we work under and in the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 14.23 says, The talk of the lips tendeth only to penury or want. The plan of the elitists falls into this category. Whether that plan be in the Soviet Union or the United States, planning is the talk of the lips. It is the substitution of the elitist dream and is fiat word for work. And God tells us that it, this is doomed. The prophet is in godly labor. Let us pray. Thy word is truth, O Lord. Thou hast spoken, and thou hast declared that thy kingdom shall be established. The ends of the earth shall serve thee, and all nations that shall disobey thee shall perish. Teach us to work, therefore, in faith in thy word, knowing that thy word is truth, and only in work under thee is their profit. Bless us to this end, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with regard to our lesson? Yes. Well, our whole educational system is geared to abstractions and not to work. 
and we have this problem of uh, MBAs and lawyers and so forth who have their entire background, work background, and preparation in school. Yes. Um, they have tried this business of what they call interning now, summer jobs of various companies, and it just gives the students a sort of a semi-clerical position. They don't really do much. And uh, yet, when they come out of these places, they're placed in a managerial position over the workers. And the Army does the same thing. Yes. The Army commissions people on the basis of having gone through school, not on whether they've displayed any qualities of leadership. So we have an entire uh, managerial group which doesn't know what to manage or how to manage, but knows a lot about what to talk about. Yes, and we have this in every field, including the church. The modern seminary prepares people, because the professors are scholars, to be scholars. The student who is not headed for scholarship and is not going to teach in a college, seminary, or university is not liked. He, uh, if it, he shows any intelligence, is told that he ought to work towards his doctorate and become a professor. That constitutes the area of excellence, although in reality, the academic community, by and large, is met, made up of second to fifth raters, not first-rate minds. But this is what the church gears for, itself for. The result is men go out into the church without any real awareness of the realities of church life. And we're paying a price for it. Actually, there was a more scholarly clergy in the colonial and early American era when men trained under a prominent pastor. And by prominent, not pastor of a huge congregation, they didn't have them in those days. They were all churches of a couple of hundred. But under one who had distinguished himself for his uh, theological ability and his pastoral ability. So that some actually had 40 or 50 students. And they trained men who made this country. And today the uh, church is peripheral to the life of the nation. The seminary bears a great deal of that responsibility. Yes. An interesting uh, exception and uh, to what Otto said is the... Uh, area of microelectronics and uh, those that comprise the workforce in that area uh, are some remarkable individuals who who indeed do not have the academic credentials mm -hmm. and it's, it's extremely interesting that that area of, of uh, progress is one of the most burgeoning uh, areas of industry in the, in the world that's yeah. very, it's an interesting contrast. Yes, it's very true. Every time you develop a new technology, it is done by those who are not a part of the establishment. But then as soon as that particular area, whether it was automotive or railroading before that or uh, 
microelectronics uh, and the like becomes uh, powerful, they want academic prestige behind them. Yes? Well, when I investigated the uh, Black & Decker Corporation, which was uh, small power tool manufacturers, started by amateurs and built by amateurs, but every one of these amateurs insisted that the people they hire have a degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. John? Something that supports what uh, Otto was saying in the area of law, just a shorthand way, really, of, uh, of saying the same thing. When I was in law school, they used to say, and I'm sure they still do, that the A students became law professors, the B students became judges, and the C students became the attorneys that made the money and helped people. <laughs> Big job. Well, one of the, one of the consequences of this of this whole system that comes out of the public schools and the universities is the fact that the elitist group that comes in, the MBAs that Otto was talking about, and uh, the other groups, uh, they come into the system with an innate hostility towards labor, mm -hmm. and those who graduate only from the public school system and never go on to the higher, quote-unquote, uh, disciplines, uh, come out of the public school system with an innate hostility towards management. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it, it creates a system of potential conflict from, from the very first day and breeds unionism. Yes. It's a major contributing factor to unionism because the management people don't understand the labor, and labor doesn't want to understand management because it's already got its, its quick and dirty solutions. And that that whole situation breeds nothing but conflict and, and frustration. Yes. To give you an example of the irrelevance for uh, the, of the seminary, in a seminary training, let us say the Old Testament, you begin with a lengthy study of the five books of Moses, only they would not say Moses. They would say the five books ascribed to Moses. The modernist seminary would tell you that these documents were written from about 900 to 1000 B.C. to 400 B.C. In other words, long after Moses, centuries after. And there were five strands major documents that were brought together and pieced together. And uh, these five strands involved many minor uh, documents that were brought together and knit together. And in the modern, modernist seminaries, you might have to get a Bible and go to these experts and uh, put a different color for each strand so that one sentence might be made up of three strands or even four. How they know this when they cannot distinguish, when they know that, say, Shakespeare had a collaborator in some of his plays, who wrote which sentence? Did Shakespeare or his collaborator? They, they don't know. But they can go back and tell you whether it was the Yahwistic, the priestly, uh, or whatever, J.E.D.P. strands, which one wrote which, and then divide each of these into many subsections. And they do the same with Isaiah. 
Well, if you go to a seminary that claims to believe the Bible from cover to cover, what do they do? They spend the entire time going over the same ground. And what they are bent on telling you is how to answer these higher critics who divide the Pentateuch into JEDP strands and many substrands. Now, none of these uh, modernist critics are ever going to listen to the professor who is teaching this course, no matter how many books he may write answering them. And certainly, no student who's ever taken this long course in how to answer the JEDP uh, Graf-Wellhausen hypothesis is ever going to encounter anyone who listens to it. But this is the kind of teaching they give. So that in both seminaries you go through and you never once get five minutes on what is the Pentateuch about? What is the law teaching? So you can go to a modernist seminary and you can go to a fundamentalist or a Calvinist seminary and never know. You never know what it's about. And the whole Bible is studied that way. So all it does is to produce mental constipation in the students because they no longer know how to come out with a clear-cut word of God. Yes? Two uh, thoughts come to mind. One was uh, from uh, high school at St. Anselm's in Washington where I attended, uh, taught by the Benedictine Fathers and on uh, this question of the authorship of the plays of Shakespeare that uh, dealt with that whole question by saying, well, the plays of Shakespeare were written either by Shakespeare or someone else by the same name. <laughs> <laughs> the other, the other yes. point, though, was that, uh, as I understand it, I think it was even in Newsweek or Time, didn't a couple of uh, Jewish scholars over in Israel uh, do a computer run on the Pentateuch and found out that it was perfectly consistent with the idea that it was written by one man to wit Moses? Just recently, in the last There year. was something uh, like that done, but uh, while it confirmed it ostensibly, I don't put much stock in it because you uh, get out of a computer what you put into it. Big well, John. The, the, the whole key in this, I think in everything we've, we've discussed since, uh, since the uh, uh, lecture was over, is that in the school system, people are taught subjects but they're not taught how to learn and understand the tools of learning to investigate for themselves. Mm -hmm. Example, in the seminary, they teach them courses on biblical criticism, mm -hmm. but it's nothing more than a subject. It doesn't teach anyone in the seminary how to think in order to be your own critic, you see. So what you're dependent upon in the final analysis is the latest information yeah. on biblical criticism in management and what have you. You're dependent upon the latest theory of management. You're not taught how to think for yourself, to think through a problem and manage the solution for yourself. Mm -hmm. The result is you have dependent seminarians and dependent MBAs and uh, dependent teachers and dependent politicians but you don't have anyone who is an independent, self-sufficient thinker who can work through a problem on his own. Yes. 
how to be independent learners. That's the thing. And uh, the point you made that you're taught subjects is very true. This is why an Old Testament professor will never relate the Old Testament to the New, nor the New Testament professor to the Old. That's not my field. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go uh, infringing upon another professor's field. As though the Old Testament belonged, or the New Testament belonged to the professor who teaches it. As though it were not the Word of God and a unity. The whole thing is very, very destructive and the church is committing suicide through its seminaries. In connection with what uh, John was just saying about, uh, it was seven or eight years ago, a professor at uh, Harvard Graduate Business School writing in, of all places, the Harvard Graduate Business Review publication uh, made the point that uh, most of the MBAs, most, more than 50%, uh, graduating from Harvard turned out within two or three years to be total failures in business. And his analysis was just exactly the same thing, that they hadn't been taught to think. They had been taught how to apply the school solution to a prepackaged problem. And they had no ability to discern or anticipate uh, the development of a problem and to uh, respond to it in an intelligent common-sense manner. Mm -hmm. Good read the implications of an idea itself. Yes. Well, one of the real problems in management today uh, with MBAs is the idea that a manager can be manufactured through a, through a university. <coughs> and it, it totally ignores the, the, the very real uh, uh, condition that applies to everybody else in any other field is you've got to have the talent toward that. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the talent to be a manager, you're not going to be educated to be one. Mm -hmm. And and there, and I see as a uh, with associates I used to work with, I, the, those that had the the long string of uh, letters after their name, they were very proud of that, of course. Uh, but uh, a good number of them were uh, weren't, weren't worthy of it and uh, couldn't do the work. Mm -hmm. Well, I think our time is about up. Let us bow our heads, sound prayer. O Lord, our God, give us grace day by day to reorder our lives and our world in terms of thy word and grant that by thy spirit we may realize that we are more than conquerors, that we are rich in Jesus Christ. Bless us and bless our work here. Grant that it may flourish to the strengthening of the things which are of thee. In Jesus' name, amen.